We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Bach and Dr. Erica Reamer for May 2nd, 2023. Today, we welcome the legendary Rose Dunn with her Dunn Report. Tiffany Ferguson addresses the social determinants of health. Lori Johnson has the latest coding news. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who once lived in a yellow submarine, Chuck Buck. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I was underwater most of the time. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the 552nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. <laughs> good morning, Chuck. And good morning, everyone. Hey, okay. So you were not on the broadcast last Tuesday, nor the Tuesday before. And I understand you're not going to be on the broadcast on May 9th. So don't you like us anymore, Erica? Oh, I love you all, but I was at NPAC first, and then I was on vacation, and next week I will be attending the National Actors Conference, and I'll hope to bring you back some news from there. Oh, very good. We look forward to that. And I do want to thank our good friend, Dr. James Kennedy, who is sitting in for you. He's going to be with us again next Tuesday when you're going to be at the Actors Conference. So uh, what are you going to be talking about today during your talkback segment? Today is potpourri day for me, a hodgepodge <laughs> like Ron does in his Monitor Monday segment. <laughs> Very good. We have much news to report, and so we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today we're going to talk about a new proposed rule from CMS. So CMS just issued a rule. And before digging into the rule, I'm going to provide some basic definitions uh, Medicaid is a federal and state program that provides health coverage to low-income individuals and families, and more importantly, is jointly funded by the federal government and state government, and the eligibility requirements and benefits vary by state. Now, Medicaid covers a wide variety of medical services, including doctor visits, hospital care, prescription drugs, and long-term care, and uh, maybe surprisingly, is the largest source of health coverage for low-income Americans, including children, pregnant women, and adults with disabilities, and elderly individuals. The Children Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, is a federal program that provides low-cost health care coverage to children and families who do not qualify for Medicaid but cannot afford private health insurance. Like Medicaid, CHIP is jointly funded by the federal government and state government, and again, eligibility requirements vary greatly by state. Now, the proposed rule requirements include, one, every other year, states will be required to publish an analysis that compares Medicaid and Medicare payment rates for critical services, including primary care, obstetrical and gynecological services, and outpatient behavioral health services. This analysis must be granular, and that means that this, that if a state varies its payment rates, the analysis must separately compare rates paid to providers based on the population, children and adults, different provider types, and different geographic locations in the state. This level of detail will enable stakeholders to better understand how Medicaid payment rates compare to Medicare and whether there are discrepancies in payment rates across different groups and regions. It also requires that every other year, states will be required to publish a disclosure of the average hourly rate paid to direct care workers providing certain home community-based service or HCBS services, specifically personal care, home health care, and homemaker care. This information was separately disclosed rates for individual direct care providers and direct care providers employed by an agency. 
It also, the rule also requires states to submit an annual payment analysis that compares managed care plans, payment rates for routine and primary care services, obstetrical and gynecological services, and outpatient mental health and substance use disorder services as a proportion of Medicare's payment rates. And finally, at least in my analysis, it requires states to submit an annual payment analysis that compares managed care plans, payment rates for homemaker services, home health aid services, and personal care services as a proportion of the state's Medicaid state plan payment rate. Now, there's going to be a 60-day comment period for the notice of, and the notice of proposed rulemaking, and the comments are going to have to be submitted to the Federal Register no later than 60 days after the official NPRM or publication is made in the Federal Register. Now, this is just a proposed rule, but over the next several weeks, it's my goal to break this down in more detail to provide potential impacts, so stay tuned for more information. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and is an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's May 2nd, and you're listening to the 552nd live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Are your doctors flailing and failing because they cannot document correctly? Are your patients and revenue at risk? Too often, poor physician documentation leads to a cascade of negative consequences, regrettable patient outcomes, pesky readmissions, and terrible public quality reporting. But here's good news. You can improve provider documentation with a set of remarkable learning modules complete with CME. Introducing Dr. Reamer's Documentation Modules, concise and easy-to-learn information so your providers can improve their clinical documentation on demand. Dr. Reamer's Documentation Modules will inspire your physicians to document their patients to look as sick and complex as they are. Clinical documentation specialists and physician advisors love them, too. Order Dr. Reamer's Documentation Modules for your providers now and start seeing clinical documentation improvement today. Now it's time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Today is about spring cleanup. I know it's May, and hopefully you're having some good weather where you are, but here's some tasks that we should address this spring. One is increasing denials. Inconsistent documentation will draw a denial if that documentation impacts reimbursement. Some examples include aspiration pneumonia versus pneumonia unspecified, con chronic congestive heart failure versus acute on chronic congestive heart failure, and sepsis. Another topic which may draw a denial is documentation that does not support the payer's payment policies. Some examples may include acute respiratory failure with hypoxia and the patient's respiratory rate is not 24 or greater. Sepsis, where the, the payer may use sepsis three and your organization may use sep two, but that disparity will also create a denial. Toxic metabolic encephalopathy and the, and the documentation does not state, or I should say, the documentation continues to state that the patient is alert and oriented, and that could be due to your template. So you want to be careful how the templates default. 
Second is the end of the PHE. CMS has published a fact sheet about the end of the public health emergency. It is important for your revenue cycle team to understand how this change will impact your facility. From a coding perspective, the update, um, you should update your facility specific coding guidelines so that you document the changes um, that are occurring from a coding perspective. Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule 24 proposed rule is out, and there are many changes proposed for MSDRGs as well as new technology items. So you should make plans to become familiar with the changes and start doing that, that research that does your facility um, use any of those new technology items so that the charge master can get updated. Four is the charge master revenue integrity. HICPIC codes and CPT codes are updated on a quarterly basis. And I see many times that sort of gets forgotten. It is important to keep on top of the changes to reduce claim rejections or missed revenue. At the end of the PHE will certainly impact charge master and revenue integrity. And then the last item I have is really just a it's very narrow focus, but Crohn's disease and manifestations. Coding Clinic fourth quarter 2012 provides guidance to assign the code for the manifestations for Crohn's disease. There is a coding instruction under category 50, which states to use an additional code for the manifestation. And there's been, um, I think, some uh, questions about that, but that's another area that we need to pay attention to. So with that, Erica, I am done cleaning here and turning it back to you. Sounds good. Good spring cleaning tips. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. And be sure to read Lori Johnson's outstanding report on that very subject using today's ICD-10 monitor. Now's the time for our Talk 10 Tuesday report on the social determinants of health. Here now is Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, all. Good morning, Chuck. Today, I'm, I would like to deviate slightly from social determinants of health and share some highlights from a recent article written by myself and Dr. Ryan Greiner. He's the physician advisor for North Memorial Health in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. The topic is a review and a challenge of the Utilization Review Committee. I am not sure how many of you are attending this committee, however, would like to give some highlights to the requirements and functions of how this meeting can optimally, optimally be utilized in your hospital. 42 CFR section 482.30 in the conditions of participation for utilization review requires that each hospital must have in effect a utilization review plan and a committee. The conditions of participation has made specifications regarding committee requirements. However, the COP leaves it up to the hospitals to decide how functional this committee can be. That's your challenge. The functions within the URC should address topics related to the utilization management of the hospital and should be clearly stated in the hospital's UR plan. 
The URC must consist of two or more practitioners that carry out the UR function of the hospital. They typically include leadership in UR and or case management. In addition, there must be two members of the committee, which are physicians. Ideally, these are physicians that are directly impacted um, or involved with the utilization management interests of the organization. Typical physicians that fulfill this role are, of course, your hospital's physician advisors, uh, chief medical officer, medical director of the hospitalist, and or medical director of emergency physicians. The goal is to ensure that the members of the committee are interested and invested in the topics discussed and can leverage other key stakeholders in the hospital, especially when reporting URC meeting updates to MedExec committee. So what the rules do not say, who else can attend? Uh, other attendees can be leadership from nursing, surgery, emergency, department, bed placement, CDI, HIM, coding, financial analysts, denials and appeals, revenue cycle, lab, pharmacy, and or physical therapy therapy departments. The goal of the committee is to evaluate resource utilization of the organization. So look internally to utilize this committee or its subcommittees to address the unnecessary resource utilization of the hospital, such as unnecessary patient lab draws, over-imaging, or canceled surgeries. The committee can choose the meeting frequency or even set up subcommittees for denials, revenue integrity, audit reviews, and or complex case reviews. Uh, we spell this out more in our article with Dr. Greiner. Consider reviewing the, with hospital leadership and C-suite the top priorities of the organization regarding resource utilization and see how these can be addressed through the committee either directly or through the subcommittee. This will allow for greater C-suite and engagement, potentially more physician engagement, and this will also ensure that these issues do not fall to yet another meeting where leadership or staff are forced to attend when it could actually all fall through the URC, as this is the required meeting for the hospital. And with that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. Chuck? Thank you both. And be sure to read Tiffany Ferguson's excellent article. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. And we have more news, but first, this very important message. Reviewing the American Hospital Association's ICD-10 CMPCS Quarterly Coding Clinic Guidance is vital to ensure appropriate and correct assignment of codes. Each quarter, the AHA examines outstanding coding issues, new procedures, and technology, and provides updates to previous coding guidance. Having an expert at your fingertips to help make sense of the guidance, putting it into real-world examples, can help coding professionals to fully master current requirements and guidelines. Now, backed by popular demand, ICD-10 Monitor is offering an exclusive on-demand webcast that will review important information released in the first quarter of the 2023 AHA ICD-10 CMPCS Coding Clinic. Nationally respected HIM and coding professional Glorianne Bryant will review and report on the guidance published so that you are up to date with compliant coding guidelines. Register to listen now at the ICD University Bookstore. 
It's always a pleasure to have Rose Dunn on our broadcast, and she's here with her exclusive Dunn Report. It's our lead story. Today's lead story is sponsored by Hitex, whose CDI natural language processing engine addresses revenue and quality measures. It's embedded in Epic's CDI note reader's workflow. Find them at Hitex.com. Here now is Rose Dunn. Oh, good morning, all. Today I'll be talking about an interesting way to coach and retain new coders. Training a new person who is in a remote location can be challenging. This is especially true when you have a new coder and that newbie is trying to learn how to code remotely. In the past, we just lean across the aisle and ask a peer or a supervisor a question. Those aisles don't exist anymore. And if we're leaning, we're doing so across the continent and multiple time zones. Recently, I spoke with a client that established a unique, and I hope for our listeners today, an interesting way to reestablish the aisle. First, for the newbie, identify one or two experienced coding buddies. The buddies may be a peer, lead, supervisor, or combination of those individuals. Ensure that the newbie and the buddy have cameras and speaker capabilities on their computers. Then each day set up two four-hour windows where the newbie and the buddy are on Zoom or another virtual platform. This places them in the same room, just like they would have been if they were on site. They will see each other, exchange the usual daily niceties, and, and probably meet the spouse, the kids, the dog, or the cat. This helps build rapport. They also get to experience each other's good and bad hair days. However, if either the newbie or the buddy has an unconventional work routine, like working in the nude, this approach won't work for you. Now, once the daily niceties are over, then they can go on mute and start their coding work. Going on mute has several advantages. I remember having a coder who constantly talked to herself. It drove her cubicle mates crazy. There's another advantage of going on mute, and that's to avoid the four Bs. Four. One is babies, second burps, third one is barking, and the fourth one is bowel sounds. But when the newbie needs help with a case, the mic is back on, and the newbie can show their screen and ask their buddy their questions. It's just like leaning across the aisle. You may need to have two buddies, perhaps one for the morning hours and one for the afternoon hours. Lunch is a good point for that switch to happen. This will help reduce Zoomitis and your productivity losses for those experienced buddies. However, before the buddy leaves for lunch, he or she should ask the newbie if there's any questions before they leave that square cube, or as we know it, the camera box. The goal to this arrangement is to provide a learning experience that feels like and delivers the same benefits as the on-site option did for coaching new coders. This arrangement provides instant feedback and avoids the wasted time typing in an instant messaging tool. It facilitates the buddy seeing what the newbie sees real time. The buddy can then coach the newbie by asking the newbie to to look in the wound care nurse's notes or did the physician respond to a query or or let's check the radiologist impression and so forth. Just having the newbie navigate to these different sources of additional information 
imprints with the newbie the important investigative process that every talented coder undertakes. It's hard to find staff these days, and creating an environment where the newbie can grow and develop a relationship with one or more of their colleagues brings back some level of the camaraderie and social interactions we had when we worked together on site. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Rose. That was really that was really an excellent um, an excellent suggestion. How long do you suggest that they um, do this buddy system? Well, I would suggest that they do that until that that uh, newbie achieves a certain level of quality, not necessarily production, but quality. So there needs to be ongoing monitoring of the quality of their coding as well. Great tips. Thank you so much, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is past president of AHIMA, and she's the chief operations officer for First Class Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, uh, Erica, very much. And Rose Dunn, thanks. That was a great report. I loved it. I found myself chuckling at all your great remarks. Thanks very much for that uh, coding report. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. Since I just got back from vacation, I'm taking a page out of Ronald Hirsch's book today, and I'm going to do a medley of topics. Have you had the experience of losing a doctor since the onset of the pandemic? Personally, I had multiple providers retire and was frustrated by the difficulty in trying to find someone to replace them. I'm going to put a recommendation in here for institutions' doctor searches to have a mechanism to filter for providers accepting new patients. It is so irritating to engage in a quest for a new provider only to discover after much time invested that they're not taking new patients. There's a prediction that there's going to be a mass exodus of physicians related to the aging of my fellow baby boomers and also due to pandemic exhaustion and burnout. A study by the Association of American Medical Colleges is projecting a shortfall of 139,000 physicians 10 years from now. Emergency medicine didn't fill 500 of their spots in the match. This study was done in 2020, and I wonder if that shortfall is an underestimation. I was shocked to read that close to a quarter of physicians in the U.S. currently are 65 and older. Just think about the brain drain when those providers with so many years of experience bow out and leave the younger, less seasoned clinicians to pick up the slack. To combat this, there are several approaches. They are trying to increase the number of residency slots to churn out new doctors. We have all seen expansion of the use of advanced practice practitioners. Another suggestion is to relax the barriers for foreign medical graduates. Were you aware that almost one quarter of active physicians are foreign trained and often non-US citizens? It can be extremely challenging to get an appropriate visa depending on your country of origin. Especially problematic is that immigrant doctors often practice in rural communities, incurring a disproportionate share of the physician shortage. Another option is to allow providers to decrease their clinical hours. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But keeping a veteran doctor on at reduced hours is probably better than their leaving practice altogether. Shifting here, from the Journal of Hospital Infection, I read an article addressing hand hygiene monitoring 
and its impact on hospital-acquired infections. Not surprisingly, during the pandemic, a reduction in hospital-acquired bloodstream infections was seen, felt to be due to better and more frequent handwashing. The study showed high-performance hand hygiene compliance reduced hospital-acquired bloodstream infections, especially staph aureus. The mechanism to monitor hand hygiene compliance was an electronic system with sensors in badges, beds to determine patient contact, and in the soap dispensers. Doctors were noted to have poorer compliance than other healthcare providers like nurses, but if doctor hand hygiene compliance crossed 50%, hospital-acquired bloodstream infections decreased. Unfortunately, hospital-acquired UTIs didn't show similar results, probably because those infections are related to internal organisms and bloodstream infections are related to skin organisms, which can be eradicated by excellent hand hygiene. This is an example of numerator management, actually improving healthcare provided, as opposed to what I normally talk about, which is denominator management by improving documentation. Research funded by NIH's National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases demonstrated an increased likelihood of hospital readmission or death for patients who experienced acute kidney injury during the index hospitalization. Patients who were hospitalized with AKI were 62% more likely to be readmitted and 266 more like, uh, times more likely to die within 90 days of hospitalization. The conclusion was that close monitoring of patients with AKI upon discharge could prevent adverse outcomes. This supports providers recognizing AKI by applying appropriate clinical guidelines and making the diagnosis in a codable format. If the provider just notes elevated creatinine, it may not elicit follow-up if a monitoring program is set in place. Finally, the end of the PHE is going to mean the end of CDC reporting color-coded community levels and a shift of focus to hospitalizations, which is a lagging indicator. We will no longer be able to calculate percent positivity. Conjunctivitis is a symptom of the Arcturus variant, and over 13,000 people died of COVID-19 last week in the U.S. That's all I got, Chuck. Back to you. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Rimmer. That's an excellent topic. And you know, as you were talking about uh, these, uh, this porphyry, as you call it, I was kind of thinking, um, this seems like something that uh, Dr. Rimmer's modules might come in handy. Let's talk about that. Well, I definitely think that the documentation piece, you know, making sure that your provider's documenting things in a codable format, making sure they understand which things are important and what they need to do to document well is definitely um, something that my documentation modules provide. So thanks for asking, Chuck. <laughs> You're very welcome. And uh, thanks again, Erica. And that is going to be a wrap for this. This is our 552nd Live Edition Talking Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today for being on this broadcast. Tiffany Ferguson, Laurie Johnson, of course, the legendary Rose Dunn, and a very special thanks to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, folks, if you can't listen to us live, you can always listen to us on demand to all the Talk to Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, and Spotify. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor. And Talk to Tuesday, have a great week, everybody.
Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.